Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. Podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links and see where it takes us. So, John, what's your starting article today? My starting article is Christian Advocate, University of Cambridge. Christian Advocate was a term used to refer to the University of Cambridge's Halcyon lecturer until 1860. Hmm. All right. I got. William Brown, psychologist. He was a British psychologist and psychiatrist. Hmm. And he was born 1881, died 1952. So he's one of the earlier ones. What did he... Did he have any notable accomplishments? Uh, let's see here. Not particularly. He... In 1936, became director of Institute of Experimental Psychology at Oxford, and he was a Christian and had a lifelong interest in parapsychology. And he served on the board of Society for Psychical Psychical Research. Hmm. Well, so we have two avenues to prestigious British schools, mm-hmm. two avenues to Christianity, and uh, yeah, there's actually quite a bit of common ground between <laughs> our random articles this time out. Yeah. Though, I would say that yours is a little more meaty. Yeah. I mean, Minus I, I three have sentences. kind of covered everything, though. I mean, I, didn't, I already you. did mine, too. Um, That's all there is. <laughs> it's a guy who gives uh, a, you know, a sermon. <laughs> That's it. Um, uh, what was the uh, university or that you had? University of Cambridge. Cambridge. U of Oxford. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing makes me like leap toward it, but I don't. I, I'm hesitant about the whole psychology thing too, because at the same time, yeah. I don't want to end up going back to depression and sadness <laughs> again. You know. Yeah, we've, we've delved into that. psychology enough, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, let's look at it this way. Which school are we more, you know, uh, uh, interested in? Hmm. Cambridge, Oxford? Well, I feel like I've already heard more about Oxford than okay. Cambridge. All right, fair enough. Um, so I'd almost rather go to Cambridge to learn more about it. You know, that sounds like a fair allegation to me. Oxford seems like... It's like the Harvard of British schools. It's the yeah. one you hear about all the time. Uh, so, yeah. Christian Advocate, University of Cambridge. That's where we'll start. And then we will immediately bounce <laughs> to the University of Cambridge. There we go. Founded in 1209. The second oldest university in the English-speaking world. 
and the world's fourth oldest surviving university. So that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It says that it grew out of an association of scholars who left the University of Oxford ha, after a dispute <laughs> with the townspeople. The two ancient universities share many common features and are often or jointly referred to as Oxbridge. <laughs> well, looks like we also left Oxford. <laughs> yes, we did. After a dispute mm-hmm. with having heard too much about it. So I guess we can infer from all this that Oxford is the oldest university of the English-speaking world. One would figure it would be hard for them to leave (laughs) were it not to exist. (laughs) So, yes. Uh, Cambridge is formed from a variety of institutions, which include 31 constituent colleges and over 100 academic departments, Hmm. organized into a total of six schools. The university occupies buildings throughout the city of Cambridge, many of which are of historical importance. Hmm. The colleges are self-governing institutions founded as integral parts of the university. In the year ended 31st of July 2014, the university had a total income of £1.51 billion, of which £371 million was from research grants and contracts. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yep. Especially for a school. Mm-hmm. But I guess they are one of the prestigious schools, so... Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says uh, the Central University and colleges have a combined endowment of around 5.89 billion pounds. So, uh, that would say the largest of any university outside the United States. So not larger than any university within the United States. Yeah. <laughs> Just larger than any university other than those here. Yep. Cool. I'd be kind of interested in uh, discovering what the United States schools have uh, income-wise or endowment-wise. The answer may shock you. At least in regards to, like, say... Harvard, Yale. Yeah, they have to have some pretty sizable ones. I mean, we're talking about pounds here. So since mm. they have an endowment of around six billion pounds, that's about twelve billion dollars. That's a lot mm. of money. I would uh, figure like only MIT and Harvard probably would be able to pull that kind of cash. Yeah, probably. But who knows? There may be other like really huge religious institutions. Like for example, I mean, uh, Liberty University. Uh, which is pretty much just known as a Christian school, mm. is uh, it has an endowment of... Okay, it's going to tell me. Uh, oh, $101 million. But apparently they got a couple of gifts of a billion dollars not too long ago, so that's uh, growing steadily. So it doesn't have to be necessarily for academic reasons, though ultimately the ones with big endowments have the best academics. Right. So the Cambridge is a member of many associations and forms part of the Golden Triangle, or uh, it's of the leading English universities and Cambridge University Health Partners and Academic Health Science Center. 
and it's actually closely linked with the development of the high-tech business cluster known as Silicon Fen, which I assume is the British version of Silicon Valley. One would assume. I'm not sure what a Fen is, though. Know what a valley is. Don't know about Fens. <laughs> There's Fenway. Not familiar with my Fens. Take no offense <laughs> to it. Students' uh, learning involves lectures and laboratory sessions organized by departments. Uh, the university operates eight arts, cultural, and scientific museums, including the Fitzwilliam Museum and a botanic garden. The libraries there hold around 15 million books, Oof. 8 million of which are in the Cambridge University Library proper, which is a legal deposit library. I wonder what that means. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that term. As le- I mean, like, legal deposit sounds like it's a bank, but for books, <laughs> somehow. Hmm. Cambridge University Press, a department of the university, is the world's oldest publishing house and the second largest university press in the world. That's pretty big. Yeah. I think I've owned some books by the Cambridge Press, Mm. come to think of it. Yeah, it does seem very familiar. Hmm. That's curious. I want to say philosophy books, but maybe I'm wrong. Mm. I know I own some from the Oxford University Press, but I'm not sure about Cambridge. Uh, it says it has uh, many notable alumni, which is, you know, to be expected, mm-hmm. uh, including several eminent mathematicians, scientists, economists, writers, philosophers, actors, politicians. 91 Nobel laureates wow. have been affiliated with it as students, faculty, staff, or alumni. And throughout its history, the university has featured in literary has featured in literature and artistic works by numerous authors, including Jeffrey Chaucer, Ian Forster, and C.P. Snow. I don't want to see P. Snow. Mm-mm. No. I want to see White Snow. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, by the late 12th century, the Cambridge region had already uh, merited a scholarly reputation due to monks from nearby... Uh, by by Shorpik Church of Ely. However, uh, it was the incident at Oxford that's most likely to have established the university. Two Oxford scholars were hanged by town authorities for the wow. death of a woman without consulting authorities who would normally have taken precedence and pardoned the scholars in such a case, but were at the time in conflict with the King John. <laughs> Uh, okay. so, yeah, that's, that's, ha- that's me backwards. That's my, uh, that's my <laughs> Mr. Mitziplik. That's my bizarro me. Uh, the University of Oxford went into suspension in protest, and most scholars moved to cities such as Paris, Reading, and Cambridge. After the University of Oxford reformed several years later, enough scholars remained in Cambridge to form the nucleus of a new university. Hmm. In order to claim precedence, it is common for Cambridge to trace its founding to the 1231 Charter from King Henry III, granting it rights to discipline its own members and an exemption from some taxes. Oxford would not receive a similar enhancement until 1248. So one could argue that it's kind of like the yingling of schools in that (laughs) 
Cambridge is the oldest continually operating school mm. in the English world. Yeah. Whereas Oxford was around earlier, but it also had some uh, disbandments and yeah. some reformations going on there. Yeah. I wonder what, how you form a new university. Seems like a big endeavor. Just you and a couple friends sitting around. Hey, we should form a university. Yeah. Uh, what do we know? <laughs> I don't know. Are there any other universities around? Uh, no. So we can just kind of know what we want to know, and we'll learn from there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. Uh, this is a bull in 1930 or sorry, 1233 uh, from Pope Gregory the Ninth gave graduates from Cambridge the right to teach everywhere in Christendom. After Cambridge was described as a stadium general in a letter by Pope Nicholas IV in 1290 and confirmed as such in a bull by Pope John the 22nd in 1318, it became common for researchers from other European medieval universities to visit Cambridge to study or give lecture courses. Well, I don't know what a bull is. Me neither. No bull. If you hover over the link, it says a papal bull, <laughs> which I guess makes sense to is... keep referencing it to popes, <laughs> but it doesn't help. Like, very... They actually send them a bull. <laughs> it's almost pal palpable. Palpable. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Oh, no. I'm kind of want to figure out what that is. What does it? What does it mean? Why does it matter? What's a pope? Hmm. Okay, okay, about the last one. Is it worth checking out bull? I don't know. Or is it just gonna lead us down the trail of bull? It just it seems like some crap, you know. Hmm. Enough of the puns. On with this article. <laughs> we'll, we'll revisit. If we want to go to Bull, we'll go to Bull. Yeah. Uh, it's notable, at <laughs> least. Um, foundations of the colleges. The colleges at the University of Cambridge were originally an incidental feature of the system. No college is as old as the university itself. <laughs> uh, the colleges were endowed fellowships of scholars. There were also institutions without endowments called hostels, and the hostels were gradually absorbed by the colleges over the centuries, but they have left some indicators of their time, such as the name of the Garrett Hostel. Hmm. Lane. That's interesting. Yeah. Hostels are not something I think of in the term, uh, in like the context of a university <laughs> now, so. I guess that's essentially their, like, dorm system. Must have been, at Maybe. one point or another. If you weren't living in house, maybe you could like come stay temporarily, and that was literally a hostel. They yeah. put multiple people in a room, and then you could like peace out whenever. Uh, let's see. It says Hugh Balsham, Bishop of Ely, founded Peter House, which is Cambridge's first college, in 1284. And many colleges were founded during the 14th and 15th centuries. But colleges continued to be established throughout the centuries in mo to modern times, although there was a gap of 204 years between the founding of Sydney, Sussex in 1596 and Downing in 1800. The most recently established college is Robinson, built in the late 1970s, 
However, Homerton College only achieved full university status in March 2010, making it the newest full college. So, I guess this Cambridge is essentially like one of those uh, clonal trees. Yeah. So it got the main chunk of the essence of, you know, the college. Right. But then they just kind of sprout up little colleges everywhere. Yeah. Based on that and one. And some of them come down and then other ones get built up. And but it's all the same college. It all comes yeah. from the same root. But you can't see the trunk. Yeah. Not because it's under the ground, but in this case because it literally doesn't exist. <laughs> that we know of. Yeah. In medieval times, many colleges were founded so that their members would pay would pray for the souls of the founders. Hmm. Which is kind of a weird thing to think of in a college. Yeah, I would assume colleges would be places where you're learning about a subject. <laughs> yeah, but apparently they were built as like temples to the scholars hmm. who had founded your subject instead, almost. Hmm. Uh, they were often associated with abbeys uh, instead of colleges. A change in college focus occurred in the fifteen in fifteen thirty six with the dissolution of the monasteries. Mm. King Henry the Eighth, I am I am, ordered the university to disband its faculty of canon law and stop teaching scholastic philosophy. In response, colleges changed their curricula away from canon law and towards the classics, the Bible, and mathematics. Hmm. So yeah, I guess that was a good three hundred years that they were. Sticking with that same um, original way of doing stuff. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it was a bad switch, though. It seems unfortunate that philosophy had to fall by the wayside, Mm. but uh, it's good that they started looking at things like mathematics and uh, apparently uh, the analysis of literature. Yeah. But then nearly a century later, um, the university was at the center of a Protestant schism. Many nobles, intellectuals, and even commoners saw the ways of the Church of England as being too similar to the Catholic Church, and it was being used by the crown to usurp the rightful powers of the counties. And so, yeah, I got caught up in all that business. Apparently, it was a big part of the Puritan movement, and... um, the people there uh, produced many nonconformist graduates who, um, and approximately 20,000 Puritans left for New England and the Massachusetts Bay Colony during the Great Migration of the 1630s. So that kind of explains why the Ivy Leagues are sort of centrifuge around mm-hmm. there. A lot of people mm-hmm. probably came over from the Cambridge area in yeah. England and made a similar sort of academically focused society here. Or at least that was their goal, and it certainly took root. Yep. It's all making sense now. I didn't really put two and two together there, (laughs) but, I mean, when when you say Puritans, I don't think, like, really well-educated people. Yeah. But as it turns out, for the time, they were really well-educated people. (laughs) Yeah. You know, as educated as they could be. Yes. At the time. Right, indeed. (laughs) Uh, let's see. So they started delving into mathematics. Uh, compulsory for all undergraduates studying for the Bachelor of Arts degree. The main first degree at Cambridge in both arts and sciences. From the time of Isaac Newton in the latter 16th or 17th century, 
Until the mid-19th century, the university maintained an especially strong emphasis on applied mathematics, particularly mathematical physics. The exam is known as a tripos. Tripos? Tripos. 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 Triple X. Got it. Uh, Students awarded first class honors after completing the mathematics triple X are termed wranglers. Mm. And the top student among them is the senior wrangler. (laughs) (laughs) The Cambridge Mathematical Tripos is competitive and has helped produce some of the most famous names in British science, including James Clerk Maxwell, Lord Kelvin, and Lord Raleigh. However, some famous students, such as G.H. Hardy, disliked the system, feeling that people were too interested in accumulating marks and exams and not interested in the subject itself. Valid criticism. Yeah. So, uh, the first colleges for women were, were founded by Emily Davies were in 1869. So this thing was around for over 600 years before women started to join in on this. That's, uh, for an education place, it's a pretty long, long time. Yeah. I guess it was... But it was still that time period of... Yeah. You know. Doesn't really excuse it, but at least it shows that the, uh passing of that age was starting to yeah. it was, they were starting to turn a new leaf at mm-hmm. the very least uh, I'm sure by that point there had already been several institutions founded at least in the United States for like that were women's only schools Yeah. so I mean if you're not going to let them in they're going to make their own place <laughs> like they'll teach you wow the first woman students admitted or were examined in 1882 but attempts to make women full members of the university did not succeed until 1948. Okay, <laughs> there's a bias for you. Now wow. we have, now we've got bad blood. Yeah. Women were allowed to study courses, sit examinations, and have their results recorded from 1881. <laughs> for a brief period after the turn of the 20th century, this allowed the quote-unquote steamboat ladies to receive. <laughs> Ad Undem degrees from the University of Dublin. <laughs> so they studied at Cambridge, but then they got a degree from the University of Dublin. Just to knock them down a peg or two. <laughs> Didn't want to give them any sort of competitive edge, after all. No. If they were so incompetent, why were we so afraid to give them <laughs> proper degrees <laughs> that they had clearly earned? That's the question I have. Yeah. Yeah. It all goes back to that Louis C.K. thing. Ultimately, <laughs> deep down, women were just going to be... Were, were in charge at one point. They were just really, really mean. <laughs> There's still some ingrained fear of that somewhere in there. Just looks like it. Yeah. And they have uh, some pictures of some of the buildings here. And they look really cool. Yeah, there's a lot of cool different uh, architecture types going on. Some kind of spiky, some not so spiky, some extra spiky. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's not like any kind of central style to anything. It's all just kind of what they wanted to do at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these are uh, very modern style mm-hmm. looking buildings. There's a faculty of education building that looks entirely modern. Oh, yeah, definitely. The faculty of law. 
on the uh, Sigwick Sidgwick site looks almost exactly like a Sidgwick. I don't know what a Sidgwick is, but it looks like it would be a Sidgwick. That shape is a Sidgwick. Yeah. Then you have other ones that look kind of castle-esque, and have some that look like stadiums. Some that look like the Globe Theater. <laughs> then there's uh, the Bridge of Size at St. John's College. <sighs> look at that bridge. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, it is a nice bridge. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so, where to go from here is the question. Because hmm. honestly, we could spend the entire time on this one article. It's a very <laughs> long article. There are other subheadings here on myths, legends, and traditions, uh, town and gown which goes on at length about the relationship between the town of Cambridge and, and the at this school. Point, the we game. are only a quarter of the way down on the scroll bar. <laughs> yes. Uh, we should mention that. Organization and administration, uh, under which you see the different, you get to know, learn about the different colleges, the 31 different colleges, all of which have a link. Uh, the schools, faculties, and departments. How the administration is set up the finances of the school, how they go about fundraising and so forth, affiliations and memberships, uh, their admissions procedure, how many people usually get in, how their teaching takes place, what research they do. It's interesting to note under the research category that Cambridge does in fact have a joint research partnership in the United States with none other than the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. Uh, the graduation ceremony. It also has a template for how everybody <laughs> is given a degree, which is stated in uh, Latin. <laughs> if you want to, at home, you can copy and paste the text of the decree, decreeing ceremony. Put your name in the blank and pretend that you too have a <laughs> Cambridge degree. Oh, by the way, we're only halfway down the scroll bar now. Yep. This is me just reading the subheadings to you. Here we go. We're going to get fast. We're going to get, like, Sonic here. <laughs> subheadings only. Libraries and museums. Publishing and assessments. Reputation and rankings. Student life. Student union. Sports. Societies. Newspaper and audios. JCR and MCR. Not my chemical romance. <laughs> formal halls and May balls. Notable alumni and academics, mathematics and sciences. Lots of beards and mustaches in that one. <laughs> Humanities, music, and arts. No mustaches. No mustaches at all. And Hugh Laurie. Uh, sports. <laughs> King George VI. Education. Politics. The Queen of Denmark. Uh, in literature <laughs> and popular culture, where it's a lot of places. And finally, a rather lovely gallery for... There were already a lot of great pictures in this article, mm -hmm. but now there are some really cool ones. Although I do have to question the choice of uh, scheme for the inside of the Judge Business School. If you go all the way down to the bottom of the pictures, it's the very last picture in line there. If you look mm -hmm. inside, it looks like a large play place. <laughs> it looks very much like yeah. something from an old McDonald's play place. Wow. 
and just because of the way that I tilt it, like it's all colors <laughs> and fun angles of staircases. It, it looks, just like looks like little netting. Yeah, the just looks like there should rails. be a ball pit someplace. <laughs> but nope, that's the business school. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So yes, that opens up all of our uh, options here. See also Cambridge University primates. <laughs> okay. <sighs> where to? <sighs> where to? Where to? Where to? So many links. So many references. Oh man. There are so many so many good links to uh, various multimedia. Mm. Must resist. Doesn't help that Hugh Laurie is involved with this place. <laughs> I mean, his face is just right there, it's staring at me. Got house eyes staring at me. That's not good. He's always bull, but might not be the most interesting. Nah. I mean you have Charles Darwin, you have Jane Goodall, Stephen Hawking. Did I mention there's Hugh Laurie? <laughs> Hugh Laurie's in this article. Okay, here, let's uh, let's go through the actors and directors that have come out of this here. Well, okay. at least I'll, I'll skip over some of the ones that I don't know. Okay. Uh, Sir Ian McKellen, mm. James Mason, mm. Emma Thompson, mm. Stephen Fry, mm-hmm. Hugh Laurie, uh-huh. John Cleese, oh. Eric Idle, Graham what? Chapman, what? Tilda Swinton, Thandy Newton, Rachel Weisz, Sasha Baron Cohen. What? Tom Hiddleston. Okay. Eddie Redmayne. Yeah. Uh, Lily Cole. And Sam Mendez. Paul Greengrass. Um, John Madden. <laughs> uh, Probably not that John. No. No way. <laughs> no, it's John Madden, the director. No. No. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, so the director of the newest James Bond films is a Cambridge man. Hmm. Is he also the director of American Beauty? Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow, there are some good options there. Hmm. There are too many good options here is what the problem is, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Obviously, uh... We need some sort of like crowdsourced input <laughs> thing where they can like vote on what they want to hear. Mm. Oh man! At this point, I still want to go for Hugh Laurie, but it also feels like I'm giving up a little bit <laughs> because I'm just kind of like defaulting to like the easy one for me. I I do think it's interesting to note though that uh, in my mind, seeing like Ian McKellen play uh, Magneto, seeing Hugh Laurie play the bad guy in Tomorrowland seeing uh, Eddie Redmayne play the bad guy in Jupiter Rising, uh, seeing Tom Hiddleston play the villain in the event in the Avengers and Thor franchises as Loki. Mm. I've been oddly associating all of those people in my mind. <laughs> Legitimately. Like, they're mm. acting styles while they're villains. I'm like, why do they all seem the same? It's not because they're British. Like, I've seen British villains be distinct mm-hmm. before, but they all seem the same. I couldn't place my finger on why, and I think it's because... Of, of their common Cambridge connection. Hmm. I feel like they all learned how to be bad at Cambridge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the they, same school they all villain. make, like, the most excellent villains. They really do. Hmm. So, I mean, I think that's kind of interesting. But I also yeah. think it's interesting that it also has produced amazing comedic talent as well as villainous yeah, talent. Yeah, definitely. With Stephen Fry, again, the half of uh, Monty Python yeah. right here. And Sasha Baron Cohen? 
And Tilda Swinton's been pretty good in her fair share of comedic roles too. Yeah, absolutely. including that that upcoming that upcoming uh, Coen Brothers flick, that yeah. Hail Caesar. Oh man, that's gonna be rich. Oh yeah. Actually, you know what we should do? Hmm. Totally go Tilda Swinton. That way we can like cash in on some uh, sweet sweet Coen Brothers action. You know what I mean? There we go. Yeah. Now we're thinking. I like the sound of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Steer this thing a little bit. All right. So Tilda Swinton. Also, I find her fascinating to look at. Yeah. This is a very individual-looking person. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's going on there. Almost alien. It's weird. Good weird, though. Very attractive extraterrestrial. <laughs> she was born in 1960. She's had quite the career. That is for sure. Yeah. Uh, longer career than I ever really recognized her for having. Oh, yeah, definitely. I've only really known of her... Post two thousands work. She's fifty five. Holy crap! <laughs> yep. She does not look fifty five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's been working since or act, acting since nineteen eighty six. Um, at least you know in films. And the first movie that I really recognize that I know from would be um, Vanilla Sky but even then I don't really remember her. No, definitely not. Um, the first movie that I specifically remember her from is Chronicles of Narnia first played the White Witch. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty big one. I don't know where she was in Adaptation. Was she in Adaptation? Okay, she was born in London, daughter of Judith Balfour and John Swinton. She has three brothers. Her father is a major general and Lord Lieutenant of Berwickshire. Hmm. Or at least he was from 1989 to 2000. Not sure how you get unseated from a lordship. <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was one of those things that was like family lineage, like you just had that. Yeah, yeah, it seems like something that you just have and once you have it, you don't unhave it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, her mother was Australian. Her paternal great-grandfather was a Scottish politician and herald, George Swinton. And her maternal great-great-grandfather was the Scottish botanist, John Hutton Balfour. Hmm. So, the Swinton family in general seems to be a family of intellectual Anglo-Scots. Uh, that can trace its lineage to the Middle Ages. The Swinton family is one of only three families, along with the Ardens and Berkeleys, that can trace their unbroken land ownership and lineage to before the Norman Conquest. Well, so that's a while ago. It's pretty much before England was England. So, <laughs> and she attended three independent schools: Queensgate School of London, West Heath Girls School, and Fettes College. Fetz College. <laughs> and in West Heath, she was a classmate and friend of Princess Diana. Interesting. And then obviously she went to University of Cambridge and actually got a degree in social and political sciences. That one I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> and while at Cambridge, she joined the Communist Party. What? <laughs> Later she joined the Scottish Socialist Party, so I guess she's just... <laughs> Into that kind of thing. 
Huh. So that's something I didn't know. Very interesting, for sure, yeah. Kind of explains her starting to go into more uh, theatrical endeavors, though, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, those kind of political moment, movements kind of are associated with a sort, certain sort of uh, flamboyant theatricality to them. Yeah. Uh, you know. They're not low-key by mm. any stretch of the imagination. That is for sure. Uh, looks like then she got into Shakespeare. Um... She joined the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1984, and her first film was Caravaggio in 1986, directed by Derek Jarman, and she worked with him for a number of years after that. Swinton also played the title role in Orlando, Sally Potter's film version of the novel by Virginia Woolf part allowed Swinton to explore matters of gender presentation on screen, which reflected her lifelong interest in androgynous style. Hmm. Oh, yeah? She has yeah. one of those, huh? <laughs> uh, Swinton later reflected on the role in an interview accompanied by a striking photo shoot. People talk about androgyny in all sorts of dull ways, said Swinton, noting the recent release of Orlando had her thinking again about its pliancy. She referred to 1920s French artist and playful genderbender Claude Schoon. Schoon looked at the limitlessness of an androgynous gesture, which I've always been interested in. Hmm. So, definitely a stylistic choice on her part to look as interesting and kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, neutralized yeah. at the same time as she does. Hmm. But that's really kind of opened up her film roles a lot too, I feel. Oh, a lot yeah. of the films that she's been in, she's been able to pull off much more extreme-looking or, you know, specific types of characters yeah. than she would have been able to. I mean, if she wants to, she can totally pull off like the classed-up like lady thing if she mm -hmm. want if she if she wants to. But not doing that is pretty smart. Yeah, definitely keeps her options wide open. Yeah. More recently, of course, she stopped. Uh, solely doing Shakespeare Company stuff and things that us in the States would not have heard about, started doing more mainstream projects, uh, including a role in the American film The Deep End in 2001, in which she plays the mother of a gay son she suspects of killing his boyfriend. For this performance, she was nominated for a Golden Globe Award. She appeared as a supporting character in the films The Beach, 2000, featuring Leonardo DiCaprio, Vanilla Sky in 2001 with Tom Cruise, and as the Archangel Gabriel in Constantine in 2005 with Keanu Reeves, which I did not know she was in. Yep. <laughs> again, again, she's a sneaky one, this Swinton. Swinton has also appeared in the British films The Statement and Young Adam. Yeah, and then, as mentioned before, in 2005, she played the White Witch in Chronicles of Narnia, the new films. Um, and then she was in that film Michael Clayton, which was very good, but at the same time, kind of forgettable. Yeah. It's one I of those have, movies. I like that movie a lot, but it was... It was very uh, real and raw at the time, mm -hmm. but it was very kind of uh, it was very kind of muted. Yeah, I want to say. 
the way it presented itself was just very subtle. Yeah, I would say that's what kind of propelled her further for everything, sure. because that kind of got her into the awards circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she got in with the Coen brothers for Burn After Reading. Which she was fantastic in. Absolutely. That movie was just a romp as far <laughs> as like Coen Brothers stories go. Like, oh, it, yeah. But it was it was great because it seemed as though it was intentionally built to fall apart <laughs> yeah. in a very Coen Brothers fashion. Yeah, I love when their characters are just a bunch of numbskulls. Yep. <laughs> Nobody knows what <laughs> they're Nobody doing. Nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> Burn After Reading is probably the best orchestrated example of that. Yeah. I love that film, Something Fierce. Mm-hmm. Uh Maybe my favorite comedy of theirs. I mean, The Big Lebowski is a great movie in its own regard, and it is a comedy, mm-hmm. but ultimately, I think that uh, Burn After Reading is much more comedic in tone. Oh, yeah, like, outright. outright. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Big Lebowski is much more subtle. Yeah, it's so many things. It's yeah. com- it's comedic, sure, but it's also very dramatic at spots. Yeah. Uh, very much a murder yeah. mystery. You know, uh, it's, it's its own... It's unto itself. Mm-hmm. The Big Lebowski is kind of unparalleled kind of combine it's the perfect synergy of the two styles the Coen brothers really accelerate yeah at, definitely uh or rather excel at not accelerate at uh <laughs> they haven't gotten faster at them over the years um but they uh yeah perhaps reading maybe their their ultimate uh comedic film mm-hmm Unless Hail Caesar <laughs> does a number on it, which it might. Oh, it could. It could. That looks promising. It that does. Very <laughs> promising. Yeah, and then she was also in uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And uh, she's been in quite a few other things since then. She was in the... Uh, 2014 film Snowpiercer which you can catch on Netflix and I recommend you do Mm -hmm. excellent movie very good also a Captain America in disguise is somewhere in the movie can you (laughs) guess who it is it's a big character but you'll never know (laughs) speaking well kind of speaking of Captain America tangentially um she is playing well Tilda Swinton is playing Doctor Strange's um I guess, is his, it the... His mentor. Mentor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The ancient one in the film Doctor Strange. And, uh, you know, it's originally a male role, but they cast her, which, Fine. there you go. Whatever. Opening up her options, she keeps, you know... When you're the ancient one, you don't really care about gender after a certain yeah. thousand or so <laughs> years of being alive. It's kind of, kind of not, it's kind of above your pay grade. Yeah. Or below your pay grade, I should say, at that point. Yeah, and then obviously she is also in the movie Hail Caesar. Huh. What's that? Let's find out. Okay. <laughs> you know, even the simplicity of the poster is just delightful. It makes it, it makes me <laughs> want it more. It makes me feel like the Hudsucker proxy is happening all over again. Mm, yes. Now, this is not to be confused with Hail Caesar, the 1994 film, and it's especially not meant to be confused with the ACDC song of the same name. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, folks. This is Hail, comma, Caesar, exclamation point, and it's an upcoming comedy film 
Written, produced, and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. The film is set to star Josh Brolin, George Clooney, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, and Ralph Fiennes. Hail <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Caesar follows Eddie Mannix, uh, played by Josh Brolin, who is a fixer working in Hollywood in the 1950s, trying to discover what happened to a cast member who vanishes during filming. First revealed in 2004, I know, because I was there for the revelation, like, the internet, like, told me about it. Mm -hmm. The film was originally set to take place in the 1920s and follow actors performing a play about ancient Rome, but the Coens shelved the idea until late 2013 when they stated it was in development. The project was confirmed to be in development in 2014, uh, and it's scheduled to be released in February next year, 2016. Mm, yep, looking forward to that. Oh yeah, oh yes. Only a couple months away. It's the 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 basic plot tease was out in in public in July two thousand and four, and I read about it back then. And <laughs> I was I've been patiently waiting for this one, and so many other films have happened first. And I'm happy yeah. they did. We got we got a serious man. Mm. We got inside Little Davis. We got uh, we got Burn After Reading during that time. True Grit. I mean, we got some great Coen Brothers stuff since that point in time. But man, <laughs> am I ready? Am oh, I ever yeah. ready for this? It is time. It'll be a nice little bright spot in the middle of winter. Yeah, I I always love when George Clooney teams up with them. Yes, they are a great fit. They stated uh, that the Co- the Coen Brothers that is stated that this would be the third in the Numbskull trilogy with Clooney, following Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and Intolerable Cruelty. Now, I've never seen Intolerable Cruelty, I don't think, from end to end, but I do think that should probably be subbed out for Burn After Reading, because George Mm, Clooney's in that one, too. At this point, yeah. (laughs) And he's way more of a numbskull in that one than he is even in Oh Brother. Yeah, but I do love Intolerable Cruelty. It is a good one. I think I actually own it. You know what? I'm gonna go home and watch that. I, I should. I should do that. Uh, it just... has Cedric the Entertainer. What? Which? <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, it's it's just delightful. Okay. All right. I'm down for that. Yeah. It seems like this movie is one that they keep bringing up, like, or they have kept bringing up, like. Between every new movie that they produce, yeah, they wouldn't. it's just like, hey, that movie Hail Caesar. Remember that movie? It's like, We're not doing <laughs> it's, it's just so annoying when they do that. Though, like, yeah. they've been teasing me with it for years. Just <laughs> give me the movie already, Coen Brothers. Just do it. Mm-hmm. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is also going to be a quasi musical. What? Are you if kidding? I, I mean, maybe like in the vein of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah, where there's songs in plot. Yeah. Just not like the necessarily prominently featured thing. Yeah, it says um, Carter Burwell will, in addition to writing the score, write original songs for the film. Some of the uh, sets in the trailer did look like they had... um, a few musical scenes that they were filming on. Yeah. So they're probably going to like have them 
be in the middle of like a song right. and dance number and then they talk to them or something like that. Yeah, because uh, Channing Tatum was definitely in the middle of some kind of dance number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looks like it will be ripe with comedy. Uh, I can't wait. I'm <laughs> so pleased. What a great cast. I mean, mm. Jonah Hill's in this too. Channing Tatum, yep. uh, as Eric just said, Robert Picardo from uh, Star Trek fame. Of course, Francis McDormand has to make an appearance because, oh, yeah. you know, uh, marriage is one of those things. Um, <laughs> especially when you're married to a Cohen brother. <laughs> Dolph Lundgren is also in this, apparently. What? Which I did not know. <laughs> that is a new, uh, that's a new revelation, but he I am... He is a Soviet submarine commander. Of course he is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so oh, glad that's man. a thing, though. That's perfect. Oh, wow. Now I'm all hyped up again. That's not a good place to be. Oh well. Where should we go from here? Need something to cool down to wrap up on. To really like chill out. To let ourselves reel in our hype train here a little bit. (laughs) Oh, and uh, yes. Going back to original songs. I think... Um, Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. the song that they sing, um, forget what it's called, like Kennedy, it's about Kennedy, um, I can't remember, but <laughs> it's about Kennedy though. It, uh, so he's either sleeping with Lewin or he's getting <laughs> shot. It's one of the two. It was, uh, Justin Timberlake yeah. was in the studio with the main character mm-hmm. and singing the song and it was, um, just one of the funniest things I've seen in a Coen Brothers movie. I think the uh, song was very ridiculous. That was scored by Timberlake too, wasn't it? Didn't Justin Timberlake do a lot help. of the songs for that movie? Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, Coen Brothers are notorious for retaining their mm-hmm. core crew that they work with, but ultimately, uh, in that movie, they turned to him for a more pop, pop, you know, take on things. Yeah. Let's see. Could go to. There's a link to Eddie Mannix, the character that Josh Brolin plays. Which is interesting. I thought that was just a character, but maybe it isn't. Could be based on a real person. Let's go check it out. Oh my gosh, it's based on a real person. <laughs> this was a good choice. Wow. Okay, so he is. Um, he was a Hollywood fixer. Um, he was an American film studio executive and producer. And it says he was able to hide aspects of their often colorful private lives to keep their clean screen image uh, for Hollywood stars. Okay. Born in New Jersey, he used Edgar Joseph Mannix as his official name, but he was born Joseph Edgar Allen John Mannix. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, most associates just call him Eddie. Now, after working as a bouncer and then treasurer of the Palisades Park Amusement Park, 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 <laughs> he became involved in motion picture exhibition, eventually working his way up to general manager and vice president of MGM. Oh, wow. And he was um, associated with the death of actor George Reeves. Um... Reeves had begun having an affair with Mannix's wife, Tony, in 1951. Oh, snap. And 
Mannix reportedly approved of the affair. What? Which was considered an open secret in Hollywood. And he was having an affair of his own with a Japanese woman. Okay. <laughs> and all three were Catholics and did not believe in divorce. And the arrangement continued for the next several years. And then uh, Reeves ended the affair in early 1959 and became engaged to socialite Leonor Lemon, which devastated Tony. And then Reeves died of a gunshot wound to the head at his home on June 16, 1959. His death was ruled a suicide, but controversy surrounding that ruling and the circumstances of his death began. Rumors arose that Mannix, who was also rumored to have had mafia connections, had Reeves killed for hurting his wife. Wow. <laughs> that is incredible. Oh my gosh. So it wasn't the affair that killed the guy. It was ending the affair that literally <laughs> prompted him to kill him. What a, what a human being, this yeah. Eddie Mannix. This is... Oh, he's, a, he's a polar opposite of what a normal person would be. Yeah. <laughs> Having an affair? Okay, mm. cool. I am too. Let's uh, let's keep this going. What? <laughs> yeah, we don't, need to, we don't need to worry about that. What? What do you mean he ended the affair? He can't do that to you. <laughs> Only I can do that to you. Oh, uh, well, you... Mm. Mm. Wow. Isn't, that, isn't George Reeves... That's, that's Christopher Reeves' dad, right? Yes, it is. I'm amazed that after that kind of a, a death that uh, Christopher Reeve wanted to be involved in Superman films at all. <laughs> like, what kind of... That had, to have, that had to have hurt. Yeah. says here that Mannix had uh, ill health due to a weak heart for a number of years. And by uh, 1959, he had survived several heart attacks but was confined to a wheelchair. Mm. Um... Suffice it to say, his mafia connections probably took a, took on that murder, not him. Uh, <laughs> on August 30th, 1963, he died of a heart attack at his Beverly Hills home at the age of 72. And in addition to Josh Brolin playing him in Hail Caesar, uh, Bob Hoskins previously portrayed him in the film Hollywoodland. Which was about the life and death of George Reeves. And starred Adrian Brody. And uh, Ben Affleck. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Maybe I'll have to watch that movie again. Yeah, with a new perspective on <laughs> it. Of it was a real thing. Yeah, because I remember that movie being very forgettable and not necessarily very interesting, but... Maybe it'll be a little more forgettable knowing that it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After hearing about all this, definitely makes me more interested. For sure, for sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> on that this note... Is, this is an interesting one. Um, there you have it from Christian Advocate, University of Cambridge, to Eddie Mannix. Quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> So if you enjoyed this, go to facebook.com slash TWC podcast and give us a like and follow and head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can always find new episodes on our website, twc.ericturibio.com. And I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song. 
and Ma Rainey for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Wow. Oh, man, am I not excited where for I, that movie. Not where I expected it to go from Christian Advocate. Yep. <laughs> <coughs> if ever there was not a Christian Advocate. Then it would have been that. <laughs> Yeah.